Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Join us every other Wednesday when we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science, as well as the ins and outs of Good Dog and how our platform can help you successfully run your breeding program. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Good Dog Pod. I'm excited to have Dr. Angie Johnston here with us today. She received her PhD in psychology from Yale University and is now an assistant professor of psychology at Boston College. She is also the director of the Canine Cognition Center and Social Learning Laboratory. Dr. Johnston's research investigates the evolutionary origins of human teaching and learning. She previously evaluated how children assess the information they learn from others, but in more recent work, she has investigated which aspects of human learning are unique and which are shared with our canine companions. She has explored some of the striking similarities dogs have with humans in their capacity to learn from others. We have invited Dr. Johnston here onto the Good Dog Pod today to talk about some of her recent research. So Dr. Johnston, welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start by kind of setting the background. We can talk a little bit about the idea of natural pedagogy and pedagogy is just a fancy word for methods of teaching. But specifically in humans, you know, that's what you've dedicated a lot of your work to, but partly because I think sometimes people are very interested in what can dogs do or is your dog as smart as a three-year-old child, right? Without first understanding why we care. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can kind of tie in your early work with how children learn from others to explain how adults actually facilitate learning in children. Yes. So this theory of natural pedagogy, which is like you said, just a fancy way of how children learn from other people suggests that there's certain expectations that even young infants come to the table when you're teaching them with. And one of these expectations is that when we use that high-pitched baby speech, like, baby, you're such a cute baby, and you use the infant's name or make eye contact, that these are actually cues that tell the infant, hey, I'm about to teach you something. And then this prepares them to learn from you. Okay. And it seems like we naturally want to talk to our companion animals with that voice because I know I do that all the time. (laughs) Yes. It's actually there's research that suggests it's the same tone of voice that we naturally use between infants and companion animals like dogs. And so this is a major reason why we like to study dogs with these questions because we treat dogs much the same way we treat our own infants. All right. Yeah. I mean, I think we've all seen that in our daily lives. Now, you were studying children. What made you decide to switch to dogs? Or did you fully switch? Are you still doing kids too? Or is this comparative work? It's fully comparative work now. So when I was in undergrad, I was in a lab that studied how children decide who to trust for new information. And some of the main findings we had are that when you teach preschool children new information, they sometimes are likely to go with a nice person who doesn't know what they're talking about over an expert who may be a little bit grumpy. Okay, good to know. (laughs) Yeah. Be nice. (laughs) Be nice. Yeah. So that was some of our original findings that we found. And I went to grad school expecting to do much of the same work at Yale. And as a side project, when I was a first year student, I went with a postdoc to her dog daycare and worked with the dogs at the dog daycare. And we just fell in love with it and decided to start a lab on campus at Yale that studies dogs. And it was around my third year of halfway through my PhD that I had a moment where I realized I'm in love with the dog research. I've got to switch. And so 
I switched, but I do still study research with children. It's just always comparing to dogs. Gotcha. Cool. Well, speaking of comparisons to dogs, there's a research method called the violation of expectation, which has primarily been used with pre-verbal human infants, so a way of getting information from them when they can't tell you, right? Like if you're doing research with adult humans, you often ask them questions and get answers. But with kids that can't talk yet, we can't do that. Can you explain this method in a little more detail and how you adapted it for use in dogs? Yes. So basically with infants, this is a way that we can see what they're thinking without asking them questions like you mentioned. So perhaps the easiest way to think of it is like a magic show. If I were for you, even as an adult, to show you a sleight of hand or I made something appear in a completely different location, you might stare and think what's going on here and try to figure it out. Well, infants do the same thing when they're surprised. They look for a longer period of time. And so we're able to do magic shows where we have an object change identity or change location, and infants will react to be surprised to these changes. We use the same idea with dogs where we show them magic shows and we measure how long are they looking at the outcome and longer looking times suggests in theory that they're surprised. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's great that you can describe your research as putting on a magic show for dogs. Like I can't think of anything better than that. So, (laughs) okay. And, you know, my background's in animal cognition. So I've probably seen about a thousand studies about how dogs respond to the human pointing gesture and (laughs) ostensive cues, which again is another fancy word, just meaning cues that draw your attention to something, right? So when you point to something, we certainly know as humans, like, oh, I should look at that because someone's pointing it out to me. So you tested how dogs respond to, so this is kind of a magic show, I think, probably based on what you just said, when a toy they'd been presented with either changed location or type, and whether it mattered that a human had pointed out the toy to the dog first. So can you just briefly, you know, I think you can probably do a much better job than I just did trying to explain what happened during the study and what you found. So what was going on with the human and the dog in the study? Yeah, so I think it's helpful to start really quickly with the infants. So what happens with infants is if you show them that an object either, like you said, magically appears in a new location or magically transforms into another object, they tend to look longer On average, if they're just watching the show to changes of location, Mm, they seem to be more surprised if something has suddenly changed location. But this changes if you use those ostensive communicative cues that we talked about, the high pitched speech and the Mm. eye contact and pointing. In that case, if you use those cues and point at the object, then they become more surprised when it transforms into a new object. And people think this is because When you're teaching a child something, you're probably teaching them like about how this tool works or what the name of this object is or things that are about the object, not about look at this location right here, right? Where you're usually trying to point out something that's a little bit richer. Okay. And so that's what infants are expecting when you use these communicative cues. We tried this across two studies with dogs using the same sort of magic show. And the dogs did not seem to care about our ostensive cues in this case. They seem to be mostly surprised if it transformed into a different object in general. It didn't matter if we were using ostensive cues or not. They were very focused on, hey, that's a different toy. Okay, well, that was my next question is what kind of objects were they dog relevant objects like dog biscuits or like (laughs) toys? We thought about using food, but sometimes with magic shows, the food gets them too excited and they really want to run up and get the food. Sure. (laughs) As any dog owner might know. 
And so the objects we used were just different toys. So we had nice. a couple different pairs of toys that were really different from each other. One was like a plush star-shaped toy and one was a rope tug toy. Okay. So we great. tried to have different textures and things like that to make sure they would notice. Cool. Okay. So there's been a lot of research that is looking at canine cognition and the human-dog relationship. And often they start with using the wolf as a comparison species. Your research has looked at the dingo. So why did you choose to compare dogs to dingoes? Yeah, so dingoes are really cool because they give us a snapshot into an intermediate point of domestication. So essentially, what we know happened is that the tens of thousands of years ago, there was this animal that was very wolf-like, the last common ancestor of dogs, wolves, and dingoes. But then for several thousand years, it went under a process we call self-domestication where the animals that were more tame were more willing to come into human camps and eat the human trash. And those animals were more likely to procreate. And then their pups would be more likely to be tame. So this is a taming process that was not at all directed by humans, just a natural selection process. And then humans took those tame animals a couple thousand years ago and started breeding them for different purposes. And so domestication is actually a two-part process. Dingoes, show us the intermediate point because they went with seafarers to Australia Mm. from Asia and went back into the wild and haven't been artificially selected by humans, but they did go through the self-domestication process, at least partly. And so wolves are showing us what is a canid like that hasn't undergone any of these domestication processes and dingoes show us the self-domestication versus the artificial. Without the human, like... So they haven't been bred by humans. That's That's a very important point. Yeah. That's really cool that you incorporated them into your research, which we will hear more about after this break. You are listening to The Good Dog Pod. We are talking to Dr. Angie Johnston about her canine cognition and social behavior research, and we'll be right back. Education is at the core of our mission here at Good Dog, and we're always finding new ways to provide the latest and greatest in canine health and research to our community of good breeders. We're excited to offer members of our community free and exclusive access to Good Dog Courses, a series of online educational courses that include in-depth videos, checklists, breeding tools, and more. You can receive exclusive access to Your Litter A to Z, which helps prepare and guide you all the way through whelping, raising, and sending your puppies home, Breeding Foundations, which includes eight courses that have been hand-selected by our team to help get you ready to breed and start a successful breeding program, Savvy Socialization, This class discusses new ways to think about socialization of puppies and how to approve upon current recommendations and so much more. You can even earn up to nine certificates of completion for all the courses we offer and proudly display them to show off your breeding knowledge. Again, this is completely free for members of our community and you can access these courses by visiting gooddog.com slash goodbreedercenter slash courses. If you aren't yet a member of our community and would like free access to all of this educational content and so much more, we invite you to apply to join at gooddog.com slash join. Hello, and welcome back to the Good Dog Pod. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Delgado, here today with Dr. Angie Johnston talking about canine cognition. So let's jump back in with some more questions. 
What's the importance of eye contact in the dog-human relationship? You talked about that as an ostensive cue that's used with children, and obviously, like dogs are sensitive to some of those same ostensive cues. And also, since you've done this comparative work, maybe you can talk a little bit about how dingoes and wolves compare to dogs when we're talking about eye contact. Yeah, so eye contact is a foundational behavior in the human-dog relationship. There's some research that suggests that with dogs, when dogs and humans make eye contact, a hormone oxytocin is released in both species, which is sort of known as the love hormone. Yes, this is why we feel all squishy inside when we're staring at our dog. Yes, and so that gaze really does elicit that. And so that's an important cornerstone of dog-human bonding. And so in the project that I did with the dingoes, we compared eye contact in dingoes to a previously published study that looked at dogs and wolves. And basically what that previous research with dogs and wolves showed was that dogs range a lot in their eye contact they make with their owner. This is a simple task where the owner's just in the room for five minutes with the dog and they just see how much does the dog naturally look at the human. That's it. And dogs range from about six seconds to about two minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And the wolves, half the wolves never made any eye contact. Oh, wow. And the other half made like one second of eye contact. So huge differences there. And these are wolves that are very familiar with the humans. It's Mm. not like a right, random... you're not going out in the in the wild and finding no. wolves and trying to stare at them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't probably work out too well. No, no, these are essentially pet wolves. And the dingoes we worked with to see where they would fall, and we found that the dingoes we tested 23 dingoes, and all but two of them did make eye contact. So mm-hmm. much more than wolves, but the duration of eye contact was much less than dogs. Okay. It ranged from something like one second to like 20 seconds. Okay, that's a pretty noticeable difference. A pretty okay. noticeable yeah. difference. And so what I think may have happened is that self-domestication process, that taming process, may have shaped these animals' initial motivation to make any eye contact. Mm-hmm. But then it was artificial selection where we started selecting dogs that are making that ooey-gooey eye contact. Perhaps in the hopes that we will give them a treat. Okay, very cool. So how would you summarize what your research has told us about the dog-human relationship so far? I think that a lot of the relationship that we've looked at has been on this domestication scale. So I think, first of all, it is important that domestication is shaping this relationship. And Mm -hmm. I think there's been some controversy about that. Like there's been some back and forth about how much Is this a genetic difference in dogs versus just dogs have more experience with humans? Sure. I think that our research is really starting to show that this has been shaped by domestication. So that's one piece of it. Mm -hmm. I think the other piece is that we're still needing to figure out exactly where are the similarities and where are the differences? Because it is surprising, like the study we talked about earlier with the disappearing objects, the dogs are different than humans. And so I think that what we've started to carve out is exactly how and where are these similarities between dogs and infants? And where are we starting to see that infants really are showing unique behaviors that might be the sort of behaviors that can support our unique human culture Mm. and other aspects of human cognition that are uniquely our own? Yeah. I'm just thinking like, why do you think there is that difference between human infants and dogs in that task where human infants are paying attention to one feature and dogs are paying attention to a different feature? I think that it comes down to human infants need to actually be participants in our culture. 
And so they grow up building on the shoulders of giants. So they're learning this information and then they're adapting and innovating on top of it. Whereas dogs are just sort of like, we kind of just feed them and they don't need to do anything. So they may not need to be having some of these learning mechanisms that humans Mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to being motivated to learn from us and interested in our cues, that's something that helps them work with us. Sure. There's another level beyond that, that they're just not going. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that in some ways when they're dependent on us, we don't ask them to probably get as much information as they might need if they were not completely dependent on us for food and toys and everything else. I think that's right. Yeah. So you're the head of this program at Boston College the Canine Cognition Center and Social Learning Laboratory. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing in your lab, what direction your research is taking right now, and what you think is the next big question in canine cognition. Yeah, so the questions that we're tackling right now are we're still trying to piece apart the similarities and differences in human learning and canine learning. Mm -hmm. And so we have several studies that are designed to look at whether dogs, for instance, will copy a human's actions exactly even when they're not necessary to solve the problem. Mm, That's something that human children do. It's called overimitation. And there's other aspects of learning that dovetail with that in interesting ways where children will stop exploring if you show them how to solve one particular part of a puzzle because they think that's the only part of the puzzle that matters. And so all of these different aspects of learning are things that guide children towards copying a teacher's actions exactly. Okay. How do you test that in a dog? Yes, it's very challenging. So our most exciting projects that we have right now are studies where we're directly comparing dogs and children on the same puzzles. And so they have to be very simple puzzles, as you might imagine. So things that involve like just knocking things over, touching a button, but you don't have to really press it. You just touch the button. Mm -hmm. Simple physical tasks for our canine friends. Nice. Very nice. And how do you find participants? Like, can our listeners sign up to be in one of your studies or? Absolutely. It's really fun. I actually bring my own dog in to help pilot test some of our studies. And it's his favorite part of the semester is when he gets to come in and participate. Dogs of any age, breed, temperament, the only requirements we have are dogs can't be aggressive towards humans. Okay. And they need to have their rabies vaccinations up to date. That's it. Any other dogs can come in in the Boston area. It's just a lot of fun for the dogs. Okay. And they work their way through their degree program. We've started having some graduates. Nice. Starting their master's programs. (laughs) So if you want your dog to be a master of canine cognition, where can they sign up? They can sign up at our website, which is bc.edu slash dog lab. Excellent. We'll drop the link in the show notes as well. So I guess still I have the question is like, Where is canine cognition going next? I mean, this field is, I think, relatively new compared to some other aspects of like animal behavior research. But like I said, there's been a lot of research on certain topics like the pointing gesture. And so, yeah, where do you think the field is going next? Or where do you think there are questions that we still need to answer? Like, What are your priorities as a researcher? I think there's a couple of different domains. One that's a topic-based question is eye contact. We Mm -hmm. still don't fully understand what's underlying the motivation to make eye contact. So in our lab, we're starting up some work that's looking at why are dogs making eye contact? Are they trying to communicate something with us? Are they just trying to affiliate? Is it different in different contexts? Mm -hmm. So we're trying to 
build up our understanding of that because it's such a major behavior that shows up. It's one of their only behaviors they can use to communicate with us when you think about it. True. That's human-like. They have a lot of body language features that are very different from us. Mm -hmm. So that's the topic-based area. But then I think besides that, we're a very young field. The field really only started in 2000. And so I think we've laid the groundwork for a lot of what do dogs do in general. But now I think a lot of the questions are coming up are trying to look at breed differences. Mm-hmm. We need more help to understand breed differences genetically. And the geneticists are starting to figure this out for us. Yeah. But I think breed differences, I think individual differences, like why are some dogs so likely to stare at their owner for long periods of time versus other ones that do not? And then also thinking about service and working breeds. Ah, uh, yes. What does this tell us about those different groups? Are there things we could be doing to help train them more efficiently or ways that will make them have a closer bond with their handler? What are sort of some of the applications? I think that's where a lot of the field has a lot more work to be done. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I always like to end my conversations with guests on a fun note. So do you have any pets of your own? I mean, you already told us you have a dog, but can you tell us a little bit about them? Yes, I have three dogs and two chickens. Oh, excellent. The dog that likes to come into the lab, his name is Vader. And he's a pit bull lab mix who's about 10 years old, a oh, rescue. Yeah. He's great. He loves doing puzzles and he loves being around new people. And then I have a 12-year-old greyhound mix named Scout, Cute. who's very sweet. And then a five-year-old hound mix named Finley, who is actually kind of dingo-like in some of her behavior. Oh, cool. She takes a little bit longer to get comfortable with people, but then gets really Mm -hmm. close with them once she is comfortable and is pretty clever. Nice. And what are your chickens' names? Yara and Margaret. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. We're going to, again, put the link to your lab in our show notes. So if people want to check out your research some more or participate in one of your studies, they know where to go. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Good Dog Pod. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, so be sure to subscribe to The Good Dog Pod on your favorite podcast platform.